0: Hey everyone, welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Chris. We've got a very interesting show for you today. We have as a guest Stan Deo. Stan is a very interesting guy. I have to go back to Derek and Sharon who called him a modern day Da Vinci, and I really can't argue with that assessment. Uh, I'll go through some of the lists of things that he's done uh, in his bio here. He's a computer programmer of mainframes in seven languages. Senior systems analyst, uh research physicist, marine architect, advanced propulsion engineer for marine, air and spacecraft, author of two books and six scientific papers, um some other things, amateur archaeologists in the Middle East, um, T V documentaries, different companies, University lecturer in 3D computer animation, biblical student, public public lecturer on world events including the coming global economic collapse, developing solar-related crisis in the Earth's climate, the UFO deception and its real intent, suppression of badly needed technologies, the coming destruction of America by civil war, followed by foreign invasion, and high-voltage physics of cheaper energy. So it's a very impressive resume, to say the least, but I think you'll find very quickly that he's a, he's an expert in a lot of different kinds of fields, and there's not very little you can ask him that he doesn't have an informed answer on. Um, we start off this discussion talking a lot about physics and things like that that a lot of you may or may not be interested in, but if you if you're not, just stick around. I assure you there's going to be something that you are interested in as we progress. And here we go. Actually, one of my first questions had to deal with uh, that. You said in the email that you knew Barry Sutterfield. Personally, I thought that was great. I'd really just been fascinated by his research in regards to the age of the universe and the, as it relates to, and the six days of creation. I had so many questions regarding the physics and stuff about it. I guess, I guess my, my question to you is how, how do you view the age of the universe and the six days of creation in light of all these um, interesting things that you look into? Well,
1: Chris, there are two ways. I'm, I'm kind of divided and uh, certainly open to uh, discussion on both methods. One is the Satterfield method, which uh, uses a, um, a, a decrease in the speed of light measured on samples he's taken uh, from uh, the 1800s to now, and trying to extrapolate that back to the Big Bang type. And uh, when he does that, then the 6,000-year uh, age for the universe could be calculated back uh, to fit within a very short timeline, not billions of years for the age of the universe, but you know, maybe uh, 10,000 to uh, 50,000 years. Uh, it's a very mm, uh, risky way to, to try to extrapolate the age of the universe on uh, the speed of light, because that curve that he uh, develops is a, an exponential curve, and it's the tail of it is the beginning point and it's uh, just a slight deviation in the measurements i mean a very slight one in the last two or three hundred years could make that uh, starting point vary by hundreds of thousands of years so i'm kind of thinking well okay yes the speed of light is slowing down i understand why and um, as far as we can determine for measurements uh, the age of the universe is a lot sh- uh, younger uh, in earth years as, uh, as opposed to what modern science says but um the good point about that particular view other than dating the age of the universe is that it means that the star systems around us are a lot closer than we thought because light was traveling much faster in some areas and much slower in other areas so um, either that or or the majority of of places uh, in the universe are a heck of a long way away because light was traveling very fast at the time but we think based on what light is doing now, that they are closer uh, than they were at that time. Now, Dr. Schroeder's viewpoint um, is uh, one that I had considered before because of the um, first paragraph, the first verse in Baratheos, or Genesis, Voraceous um, in Hebrew. The first paragraph has the gap theory in it, which is the earth had become uh, null and void or waste and void and then was recreated or restructured for the time of Adam and Eve and the uh, seeding of the planet with uh, mankind. Now that means that there was a, an indefinite period of time before that, if we accept that, uh, that tense of the verb. So at that, that structure it could have been 25,000 years before that, it could have been um, 5 billion years. What the Genesis account does appear to be talking about is a 6,000-year period from when uh, God started to put man on the earth in, the, in its current uh, structure. Right. So I, I think I, I tend to lean a little bit more towards Schroeder's view, but with parts of Sutterfield's aging in it as well. So that's not squirting out, it's just saying that there are parts of both of them I think I agree with.
0: Right, that's kind of the way I felt about it too there's, um, I mean for the limited knowledge that I have about it, uh, one thing that you did mention that I, I find is um, not always taken into account like um, Gerald Schroeder does point out that it is the creation of the the Hebrew word neshima I think, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but essentially the soul of man that was breathed into the nostrils of Adam was apparently that where that count started and, and you know, at 6,000 years ago you do start to see essentially civilization become uh, I don't know if "conscious" is the right word, but he doesn't, of course, discount the existence of the Neanderthal and everything else before that. Um, I I think a few things about that. And now I've I've heard you oftentimes describe um, the model. I think you're you're usually describing kind of the spin of the sun and different things uh, when describing the the tea or the paint can swirling around. I wonder if that is that kind of related to what I heard uh, Barry Setterfield talking about the. The atomic clock slowing down in relation to um, the speed of light like they're basically slowing down at the same speed so therefore trying to measure the speed of light with the atomic clock is kind of canceling itself out is that related to that theory that you tend to talk about yeah
1: they are related because um Barry and i've discussed a number of things on this years ago and the, the, the problem is that modern-day physics, at least out in the, in the public arena, says gravity is uh, still described by the Einstein ten-dimensional uh, matrix. And gravity is really, uh, when you when you find the cause, the root cause of gravity is a function of spin of a vortex in a fine structure, which they're now calling either dark energy or dark matter, which makes up 75 to 80 percent of the universe, but we can't see it. And so they're, they're backdooring into the uh, ether that the um, 19th and 18th century physicist uh, coined, you know, that name for ether, A-E-T-H-E-R, uh, as that fine structure of space. So it's like a fluid that's so fine it goes through everything. It, it's so fine that its particles are smaller than the smallest thing that you can imagine by, you know, millions of times. Whatever its size is doesn't matter. There is this fluid that behaves like water uh, and it, it does uh, spin, and when it spins, and it, it, when it's caused to spin, at the center of that spin, it will form a gravitational field, but that field is not one-directional. It, Because a vortex uh, sends waves out away from the spin center and collects waves reflecting back to the spin center, it's called divergent-convergent waves, because it has those two um, wave fronts uh, passing through each other, it generates shells with rings like... Um, uh, somewhat like the rings of uh, Saturn uh, uh, are, and Jupiter used to have them as well until so they collapsed on the surface. But those rings are uh, to be um, equated to electron orbits around a nucleus. And the the more correct interpretation we have at this point of a nucleus is not raised and stuck in a little, you know, raisin bun down there in the center with the neutrons and protons and uh, all the other bits and pieces stuck in like some kind of a, a pie mix. It is. Uh, a view of a spinning vortex with a uh, a center that's somewhat like the sun except that it has layers to it and then uh, rings around it which form by the spin of that particular vortex which is different for each atom and uh, for each planet and for each star and for each galaxy and each galactic cluster. All these things do affect the passage of electromagnetic radiation of which light is a portion. So light's velocity is relative to the gravitational system in which it's in. So when he says that it, it's a canceling effect, basically he's probably right. It's very difficult to measure the speed of light at our local area. We have to have uh, a much greater yardage tick to measure it. Uh, so, gosh, right. things, things are a lot closer in some respects to us than we thought, which means that star travel could be uh, a lot less painful.
0: But it's still uh, interesting to me that even if you take kind of the the fine tuning out of when and where it um, to to pinpoint where we are in relation to that, it, this the basic idea of of light slowing down does in in fact mean would mean that essentially days used to go by perceptively a lot faster if I'm if I'm reading them right, but. That would obviously change the age of the universe, so it seems that science has disregarded it as a whole as a possibility, because once the once the oh, well, I mean not as a whole, of course, but at, once the idea that this would change the age of the universe, it seemed like people were on board with people like Barry Setterfield in this regard until they realized the implications of the young universe and basically making evolution as a theory uh illogical. Would you find that the criticism uh, for him and people like that have been unfair?
1: Yeah, look, if I understand your question correctly, I, I think it is. It, it's not um, It's not an educated response, really, because if you look at it, you can have adaptive mutations from a starting point, which is not evolution so much as it is adaptive mutation. And if you look at a lot of the species of plants and animal life on the planet, you will see that certain uh, types of insects and plants and, and, and animals have characteristics that they could not have spontaneously evolved because it would have destroyed them in the process. Uh, There's a beetle that would have destroyed itself because it has an explosive mix of chemicals that it shoots out its backside and causes an explosion in its enemy's face. Uh, Trying to evolve that would have destroyed the insect along the way. So the the gene pool wouldn't have carried it forward. These things show that there has to be intelligent design at the start of everything we have on the planet. After that, it then started to uh, certainly mutate uh, to match environmental conditions and, and survival conditions. And that's not evolution, that's adaptive mutation. So um, if, if they look at it, they would really understand that that's what's happening. The the age of the universe is certainly, gosh, a very relative thing, but I think it is a lot younger, a lot, lot, lot younger than what people think. For instance, you're talking about the speed of light varying, If you take a sound wave and you put it out in the air, it might travel at 1,100 feet per second. But if you put it in a bar of nickel, called nickel metal, it might travel at 20,000 feet per second, because it's more dense. So in the beginning, in the Big Bang, when you had that concentration of mass at the very center of the universe as we know it, then everything was very dense, more dense like the nickel. So the waveforms, the electromagnetic waveforms, would have traveled a lot faster. But as the density started to drop, as the universe expanded, then it started to travel slower. So now then we're, we're measuring, saying, well, look, um, you know, uh, light travels at 186,000 miles per second, um, therefore, you know, the light from these star systems we see uh, is so far away. And as I said, it, it's relative because the, the, the speed of light varied from the Big Bang till now. And so when you try to calculate, some things will be closer and some things will be further. Um, right. One of the things that we found in studying gravity, uh, it, with, with this new concept of um, vortex theory, is that uh, the creator of the universe was right-handed. How does that grab you? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and everything seemed to follow thereafter into a right-handed rule of spin and interaction and collision, and um, that was the beginning. There had to be a, some directional spin, which uh, from the uh, ancient
0: hebrew we can determine was the right hand for god was the right <laughs> that's provocative indeed yeah that's that's interesting um i got two more kind of physics questions before we get into a lot of i mean there's so much to talk about um but actually you can pretty much choose which one of these you you feel uh, more passionate about i guess because I, I don't know how much time we want to spend on this although it's just fascinating to me but i don't know how much it will be to every, anybody or a lot the majority of people anyway um one of them is quantum physics generally non-local reality what have you determined that could the implications of that could be and mean and the other is just a question that i've had in regard to quantized redshift and what does that mean about the universe what is it why is it doing that in these bursts and uh, what does that mean about the universe. So in either one of those or both, whichever. Well, Let me
1: take the first one. Um, when you talk quantum uh, physics, you're talking about specific packets or quantum levels of energy. And they, um, they are describing with quantum physics a phenomenon that occurs in vortexual physics, but it occurs very uh, understandably if you generate a three-dimensional model of a spinning ball of fluid within uh, the same kind of fluid. That spinning ball, as it is accelerated faster and faster, will develop more inertial friction with the surrounding water or fluid. And it will cause curl toward the polar regions of that spin. And poles will get closer together, so you'll have an oblate spheroid or flattening of the sphere of spin. And on both the northern and southern hemisphere of that spin, whether it be an atom or a sun or whatever, you will see loop, filament loops form uh, of inertia. And they will reach a point where these loops on say the northern hemisphere of this spinning sphere will be close enough that their 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 vectors their spin vectors in opposition will start to collide and that will cause a loop to flip and when it does it'll flip and that becomes a quantum energy level that's why you have discrete quantum energy levels it's because of this crowding of the filaments and it's just purely uh vector analysis of inertial interactions within that fluid on the surface so that that being said Uh, When you go to quantized uh, redshift, I have to ask you, what do you mean by that?
0: Um, Well, uh, it just seems like from those graphs where the redshift was going, you know, it it seemed like they were saying that it was just going from uh, 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 higher to lower, but what interests me, and I guess my question, was why it was doing that in such developed bursts, but if I understand you correctly, it's, um, it's it's just a matter of mechanics, essentially.
1: It is a matter of mechanics. In fact, I've got uh, about half of a three-part paper uh, written and illustrated uh, using no more than algebra uh, to show people uh, the true nature of, say, electric current and the true nature of gravity and magnetism. And uh, when you get to those, um, it does explain a lot of the mysteries of of this uh, uh, quantized uh, event because light itself behaves like a wave and a particle all the time it's not uh, some of the time it's a wave and some of the time it's a particle that's why they call it a wavicle and the thing that in in real uh, tangible physics does describe that is a torus or a toroid and if light is a a function of a toroidal uh, projection like a a, a spinning torus that's been released in the fluid uh, at, at such high speed it encapsulates itself and that's why when it starts to slow down if you take a laser beam and you shine it out into the universe, even if you shine it in uh, toward the moon, the best laser beams we've got may start out at a half inch in diameter. When they hit the moon, it will be several feet in diameter. And that's because uh, as it starts to reach the, uh, the outer uh, edge of its expansion or its travel, that wave is now running out of energy or spreading it out. And these little tori, these little donuts that make up the light wave, are increasing in their their local diameter which means that they will push each other apart and make the 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 light beam flare and it's an exponential flare the further out you get so when we look at light densities from far away stars we have to understand that you have to apply um, an exponential uh, decay of the light intensity to actually determine the true light value coming from that star, which they don't do Um, and that's because Light is, is a bunch of, of, of um, coherent, in, in, in a laser, a coherent uh, toroidal uh, spin. And it's uh, just like you blow a smoke ring, uh, you know, with a cigar and stuff. That smoke ring is just spinning extremely fast. And certainly when you spin a smoke ring or a toroidal thing like that in the universe, uh, in the fluid of space, when you spin something at the limit velocity of light in that region of space, it generates more than just a a single toroid or single donut. The actual donut itself de- develops ring donuts around it that are equal space, and they can even have donuts on the donuts on the secondary donuts, depending upon the relative velocity to the region of space and the energy density of that wave. So uh, that's why uh, you have these quantized uh, quantized um, views or, or graphs of the the redshift or of uh, the particulate nature of light because it is both a, a spinning fluid and a defined particle. And you can prove this to yourself by just generating uh, air donuts yourself with uh, smoke in a Coke bottle. Take Cut the bottom off of a two-liter Coke bottle and so you can uh, slam it onto the bottom uh, with your hand, fill it with cigar smoke, and shoot little smoke rings out onto the desktop. And you'll find that these, these smoke rings out of your, your Coke bottle will actually bounce off each other like particles. But they have a wave nature because they have spin, which gives you, of course, um, um, uh, a, a, a um, oh, what do you call it, a, a radial or um, um, degree velocity, you know, uh, not, not a linear velocity. What am I trying to say? You know, when you have spin measured radians per second? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about with radians per second? No. Okay. Well, anyway, it's degrees per second spin. Uh, it, it It's spin uh, defined in degrees per unit of time, or, or you know, uh, uh, as opposed to miles per hour in a straight line. But anyway, that's, it does have a wave function because it has periodic motion in that spin.
0: So you're saying it's not necessarily dependent on what everybody's saying that being observed has really nothing to do with it. It's just a fault in the in the philosophy of this situation yeah i think so Hmm. very very interesting um okay well let's move on a little bit to a different topic Um, one thing i wanted to say what your um your book the cosmic conspiracy which was written some odd 30 years ago i i i think um you know, looking at this, I think a lot of the people that are now starting to understand a general term I've been using is kind of this Ancient of Days, uh, Guy Malone, you know, conference, those that kind of thinking, um, a lot of the people on the network that I'm on, Revelations Radio Network, and, you know, a lot of this stuff that we're all looking into was really in a, in a large measure, if I'm understanding it correctly, pretty much started with that book, whether or not people... Uh, Found out about it there. It's it's hard to tell, but would you would you see that as kind of like the first thing that was saying? Because you basically were saying, hey, everybody, watch out for a essentially a, a alien threat that you know would come at a time of great um, disaster and offer us like this this way out, this sort of messiahship ship thing. Um, could you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I'm going to tell you an interesting story about that, Chris. I do agree with what you're saying, and um, you know it's. Uh not really been a a thing with me to go out and tell everybody, look, I said that first because that's not the important issue. The important issue is is that people are talking about it, expanding on it, and adding their two cents worth, which I think is great. But what they don't know is how I got that information. And um, it it, it was a process of things that were supernatural. Um, I nearly died back in 69 before I even went to Australia and before I wrote the book. And when I was out of the body that particular uh, evening, And did come back. Uh, While I was out of the body, though, I understood. I was was shown um, like my mind expanded out there. And uh, I wanted to know how the universe worked. I wanted to know a lot of things. And the answers were given to me. um, uh, They just appeared in my mind while I was out there. And I was able to look at Einstein's uh, relativity and see how the good points of it were and really how the whole universe worked. I, I understood. It was quite simple out there. Once I squeezed back into my body and, and had to come back, uh, a lot of things slipped out the side of the shoe. You know, I, I didn't bring them back with me consciously. But that, that day when I woke up back in my bed, uh, you know, in my body and uh, had recovered, I, I got up and I went to, um, it was early in the morning, and I went to um, an all-night diner to, to have breakfast. And I was in kind of a daze still after coming back from this out-of-body experience out there and seeing my life history and all that kind of stuff flash, did flash before me. It just went all over the place. But anyway, I was in a daze, and I was sitting there at the counter. I'd ordered uh, bacon, eggs, and toast or something like that and coffee. And I had a napkin there, and and I was doodling on it, waiting for the girl to bring my order. And um, the next thing I remember, she says to me, oh, what's that? And I looked down at the napkin. I'd drawn a picture of the world, a little continents on it. And I had written a title, Diagnosis, World Conquest, on it. I said, I don't know, I guess it's, I, I, it's a book I'm going to write, I guess. And that moment is when I started realizing things were different for me. And for years thereafter, in fact, even to this day, uh, there are things that I get in dream states early in the morning, which are supernatural, and, and uh, I got a lot of them in those days, in the early uh, 70s, which led to the cosmic conspiracy, it led me to the understanding of the, of the of how the saucers work, how gravity works. Um, Um, why the deceptive alien landing is coming, how it fits with prophecy. All these things came that way. And so, uh, you know, even one time in the middle of the book, I I was trying to figure out the great Seal of the United States and and the mystery behind it in the afternoon about 2 o'clock. And I was still writing the book, The Cosmic Conspiracy at that time. And uh, as I was sitting there at the uh, computer typing it out, a sudden drowsiness came on me, so heavy, it was like I had been drugged. And I fell to the floor. And and just had to lay down and sleep at two o'clock like, in the afternoon, which is quite unusual for me. Anyway, so I lay down, went to sleep immediately, and I was in a dream state, uh, standing on a um, desert plain with a pyramid there, without a top, and um, I saw um, uh, like um, the eye with wings, trying uh, like an eagle, trying to set itself on that pyramid and and be the top of the pyramid, but it couldn't quite do it. It, it didn't belong. And it it sat there uh, on the the pyramid, uh, up above it, trying to close and and become, I guess, the great one. And the lettering that was on the pyramid was the the lettering you see um, on the great field of the United States, uh, the numbering. And and the numbers all jumbled and fell down into a mess uh, in the sand beneath the the pyramid. But when they fell, they fell in two, two lots, the first lot that fell. With certain uh, uh, letters, and the second lot were the other letters remaining. And when I woke up with a start after that, I started uh, adding up the letters, looking at what their Hebrew values were, what their English values were, and I discovered that our a whole um, money system, or you know, a time system and various other things, would be developed on a Babylonian code uh, for 60s, our time uh, structures, but also our economy was going to be based on like 666, and uh, the binary equivalent, well, that was what the second lot of numbers fell out to be. So things like that did happen, and that structured the book. So there were things afoot that were beyond my, uh, my doing that I just reported or investigated uh, to help people uh, prepare for what's coming. And, you know, I didn't know when it would come except in the near future. And, of course, in prophetic times, near future can be 100 to 200 years or 400 or whatever in case of Daniel. But uh, you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, go
1: ahead. Yeah. So, well, anyway, so the, the thing is that um, I, I'm certainly uh, delighted to have been used as a vessel to impart that information to all the other writers and lecturers that are using it. I am aware of that, but it is, uh, I'm just a, the, the messenger, okay? Uh, just like them, I'm doing my part. I've done my part, now they're doing their part, and I think that's great.
0: Right. And the the information is so crucial when you start to see this kind of playing out, you know, in the real world. And you start to see how how absolutely important it is to to get this said to people before it happens, because the deception will be so very good. You know, whichever I mean, you can just kind of game plan and a few different. I mean, not game plan, but kind of like uh, walk through a few scenarios in your head and just see how easily this would be to deceive people. Um, one of the things that I um was reading, uh, it seemed like a recent, um, uh, this is probably last year, about this time you have on your website and I'll direct people to, uh, com. One of the sections you have in there is where you talked a little bit about these, uh, dream visions that you'd been given. And, um, and you can find there what he's talking about with the seal, and that's really interesting to check out, because I think a lot of us, you know, think we have it figured out with what the seal means and everything, but that is extremely important, especially if you kind of understand of the phoenix, what that phoenix is, and what it, what out of the ashes of its, um, you know, yeah. what it's going to rise to, and, and everything, because it, it, I think it's, in a, in a sense, do you, I don't know if I want to go here quite yet, but it's like the, the new New World Order, it's like the New World Order almost must kind of Co- not collapse in itself before this new new world order rises. I don't know. If that's um, I don't necessarily want to go there. I'm not sure if I understand fourth, that right.
1: It's the fourth great empire. So
0: right. You know, um it, but, it, but um uh, the thing that I was concerned about is this 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 dream vision in 2007 where you kind of kind of had this. Uh, vision of something that might be a false rapture or something like that and just to be saying this clearly on your website you do do a very fair job of kind of looking at the rapture and saying you know it could happen here 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 or you know you know very fair look at it without really any um particular you know whatever but the no, false, no, no, no pedantic viewpoint anyway. Yeah, right. And I think that um, I think that I'm in the same place with you uh, on, on all that stuff. And and one of the things that on um that we've been looking into is the different scenarios for the false rapture and different things like that. We've talked a lot about Project Blue Beam and things like that. And uh, one thing, and, and with Bluebeam, I'm always concerned because it doesn't really seem like there's actually any beaming anybody up, so to speak. And I don't know if that technology exists, but I'm sure that they can do a lot of deception, regardless of you know that. So I guess my question is, what scenarios have you um, kind of run through your head in regards to that? How do you see any of that playing out?
1: Well, uh, many years ago when I was in Australia, uh, I think probably before I even wrote The Cosmic Conspiracy, I was debating in uh, a Theosophical Society meeting one evening there in Perth. And I was debating one of the uh, leading uh, exponents of uh, a New Age movement of the Findhorn Society in England. And he was definitely uh, on the side of the not nice guys, according to the Bible. He and I both realized, looking at each other across the room, we debated over this uh, uh, rapture business. And he said, look, it will be, telling the folks there at a meeting, it will be the removal of all the people whose vibrations have not yet matched the new age. And we will send them back to other incarnations and other worlds to develop and polish their souls until their vibrations are right." And then, of course, it came my time. We were both standing up, and I said, yeah, well, the Bible says there will be a false uh, arrival and um, a false rapture before the real people are taken. I said, you might take a few people off in your spacecraft that you're talking about, and, and however you do it, and then explain to people that, that explains the rapture. Now, let's get down to business. The people who are still running around saying that's, that's not true, you're imposters, let's put them in jail or cut their heads off. I said, I know where you're coming from. And right. He looked at me across the room, and he just smiled. You know, <laughs> at that moment, we both knew that we were opposite sides of the fence fighting, you know, over that issue, which is a very crucial issue coming to play even now. Hmm. So, uh, we've seen people like, uh, oh, um, I think it's uh, Let me just think a second. Uh, Sheldon Nidal, for instance, um, with his. Uh, galactic federation and uh, and a history of, you know, all that. uh, It plays right into that deceptive awareness. Our elder brothers in space are going to come. We're going to be put into a hollow deck type environment, which is absolute crud anyway. But um, there's so much of this stuff out there floating around that people who are not solidly grounded in the truth of the Torah or the Bible uh, are going to be horribly misled. You know, they're going to think, ah, look, here are these super beings. They they have... uh, uh, you know audio vision of the crucifixion they have audio vision of the creation you know in the garden and stuff these these are, are the real thing you know let's follow them and these these things they could have actual uh, footage or information you know video and audio information of these events if they were the fallen ones who were there attending the event they could have uh, videotaped it or however they record it and they could have brought it forward in time in their craft because they can, they can time travel forward. I don't know about backward for sure, but forward they can. And so these same beings are going to have, you know, just incontrovertible proof as far as most people are concerned that they were here and helped create man, and they are the ones we call the gods because they were super beings, super technology, and they're here to help us out. Now this is what's about to play out in some respect. When we are at the edge of World War III, right in the middle of it, perhaps at the start of it, when our world economy is failing, when our crops are failing, which they're doing rapidly now, when our weather has gone chaotic because of quote unquote global warming, um, when all of these factors are are threatening mankind in every country, every place on the earth is at threat of being destroyed in a huge way by one or all of these various disasters, I expect them to stand, you know, to come forward and say, look, We're not going to butt in, but we're going to offer you a way to save your planet and yourselves if you follow this model. We'll help your people. You'll you'll appoint to, we'll help you do that. In fact, appoint a world leader and a council to represent all the nations, and we'll help you um, rationalize your differences of philosophy and religion and tell you the truth about everything, and we'll help you solve the planet if you want. If you don't, we'll just go off and let you do what you're doing, and you'll die. You know, that's an offer you can't refuse. Hmm. So uh, that's the way it's going to be put to people, and that's why uh, it's saying, uh, I believe it's in Matthew, that the uh, that it's such a clever deception that even the very elect would be fooled, if such were possible. Now, I don't know whether that if such were possible, because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit says, don't believe it, it's us," or if they're not here because the rapture's taken. Right. And it could, it could hmm. be either of those ways, or another I haven't even thought about, but... Uh, it is going to be so clever, as I say, that, that that God-fearing people could be deceived if if they weren't warned in advance they would think it's the real thing. So this does speak of a false uh, rapture, of a false messiah-type thing being set up, because people are looking for that, and they're going to give them what they think they're, they're looking for. And mm. that's the that's deception we've got to watch out for.
0: Right. Um uh, a lot of the research uh, we've been doing is coming to the exact same conclusions, probably no doubt uh, thanks to your early work on in the matter and one of the things that you mentioned that um is regard in regard to theosophy i'm you know it's kind of leading you know in in research uh that that's not just a regular uh just another side street new age side street but rather it's a very crucial part of this um um deception and the the early writings by blavatsky and so on um well i guess my question is one thing i just wanted to throw out there in a lot of the how the bible is a little unclear about the timing of the rapture in the pre post mid that kind of thing i've all often looked at it as because uh satan is essentially counting on revelation from prophets and to to kind of game plan his reaction to it it seems like the story of the bible is him waiting on the new revelation to you know uh formulate his plan in relation to it so i see that as sort of a benevolent way of God kind of giving us the framework but not the exact time and so therefore he has had to kind of set up a few different scenarios in his and I think that's why you see a lot of the channeled information and so on kind of almost having conflicting reports like you said um, a lot of the reports are it's going to be to take up the people that aren't ready and then some of it is I'm we're going to take up the people that are ready, i.e. The, the people that understand the new age and stuff. They're the ones going to be raptured. And it seems to be all over the place, but I really like the way that you presented that, and it, it's, um, it's something to really think that there would be, in fact, a false rapture of those, and then they'd say, hey, let's get down to business, and then, very interesting.
1: Chris, there's something uh, you remind me of here. Uh, in talking about theosophy being the root of a lot of the modern inceptions or secret societies, I did find that the Great White Brotherhood, or the White Lodge in the silent circle, but the Great White Brotherhood is at the root of nearly every um, modern, large, um, uh, philosophic organization that is not Christian. It is, it is something you trace them back, trace them back, until they all mention at the root of it is the Great White Brotherhood, you know. Posing as an angel of light, you know, the, the Satan comes back posing as an angel or messenger of light. And this is what they're talking about, the light, the white light, the, you know, the great white brotherhood.
0: And that that permeates all of these secret societies. Hmm. Well, uh, one thing I need to ask you, I think, uh, I heard, I think it was in the Ancient of Days panel discussion where you were talking about um, In the Air Force, you had this uh, thing where they were kind of... uh, I don't know what the nature of it was, but they got everybody to instantly kind of read a long series of books. And you were kind of saying that there was a training thing going on, some very... And, you know, looking at the military and stuff, there's definitely a lot of kind of interesting, esoteric stuff that they're doing in regards to, you know, who knows what. But anyway, you mentioned in that that that, uh, eventually... You were prayed over and a lot of the stuff that you were able to see and kind of like think of and then see the, see it kind of manifest like in you know graphic form uh, to understand different things went away that ability went away so which um, so how does that play into the different types of uh, visions that you would have in regards to a lot of this stuff is, is there
1: now I have I have dream visions which are, are definitely dream visions that I don't control I, I see them they are graphic Uh, as as things are uh, when they come from the Lord because they, uh, instead of words so much, uh, sometimes I have seen words, but mainly it is images uh, and uh, images doing things so that I can remember them rather than in abstract form. I mean, a dream vision like that given to a guy in India uh, who speaks uh, Hindustani or something, he could understand that vision because it's, it's graphic things of real images he can understand and relate to. He sees a play in his mind. That's different. Than what I had before, where I could say, uh, see a flying saucer out there, and say, well, uh, how does it work? And it would uh, take itself apart in my mind, and uh, you know, at, in a dream state, and it would uh, open up and let me fly around inside of but I could direct it. That's different than what happened after I was sprayed over it. After I was sprayed over, um, I, I, I was never able to do that anymore, which is fine. But um, the what I did get was the. Uh, Periodic dream vision, and I say periodic, you know, maybe two or three, four years at a time between such events. And sometimes it would be of, of an airplane crash that's about to happen. And uh, um, I, I fell down in a, a very tired day after I finished the cause of conspiracy one afternoon, and again in the afternoon fell asleep because I'd been working so many hours straight through. And I had a dream vision of an aircraft, um, a Lufthansa aircraft, a commercial craft about the crash in uh, Europe somewhere, and uh, I was on board. And um, the way I came on board was I I came right through the front of the cockpit, right between the pilots, and I could see the fear on their faces because they knew they were going down and they couldn't control it, and their knuckles were white as they gripped uh, the... um, control to, you know, for you know, uh, both the nav, uh, you know, like direction control, the wheel, and the uh, the power. And they, they were knuggled, they were just white, and their eyes were wide, and they were just absolutely, you know, in fear. And I passed right through them and was allowed to stand in the aisle um, facing back up because the, the plane was at an angle coming in. And I could see people all through there, you know, crying and worrying and panicking, and I knew my my job there and I raised my hand and I said, how many of you are believers in Jesus Christ and are saved? And they raised their hands. some of them right. and I said, then do not worry, it is okay, be at peace. And they put their hands down and they weren't frightened, and at that moment the craft uh, hit the mountain and all their bodies and chairs came rushing past me as it impacted and, and blew up. And then I woke up. Well, it happened uh, either that day or the next day on the timeline uh, in, uh, Europe and the Loponzo went down. So I was there inside that craft and the Lord had put me there, I guess, to give peace to those people who were believers, um, just before the impact. It's strange, isn't it?
0: Right. You know, and I bet that actually gave a lot of people the opportunity to make that decision right there in their simple raising of the hand, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, even at
1: that moment, even at that moment, just before death. So it is a great, uh, inspiration, you know, and I hope to people that haven't made that choice yet.
0: Right. Um, well, that's, that's powerful. That's very interesting. Um, so I guess, uh, part of that is a lot of the people, let's say that were in the same program in the air force and certainly in other, uh, sectors of the military, I would assume just from looking into different things. Um, they probably went on to use that ability in different development of who knows what weapons and projects and all that stuff. Um, and I do think, you know, from different studies and stuff about, like, stuff from Russ Dizdar and stuff like that, that the idea of uh, remote viewing and stuff like that is demonically uh, empowered, we'll say, I guess. Um, And, obviously, if it is demonically empowered, it would be essentially uh, eventually serving the agenda of that, um, of the demonic realm. So, they're developing things that would benefit that um, realm. So, I guess my question is, have you found anybody that was kind of paralleling what you were doing that went on from those kind of projects to, I don't know, um do you see a connection, I guess, in... Okay, well, I'm sorry, this is a huge loaded question, but you also mentioned in the PID radio interview that you were helping a guy develop a, well, you didn't help him, he just asked you to come look at this Tesla coil that he was building, it was a fantastic Tesla coil or whatever, and he was having trouble with certain things, and you um, eventually saw that there were a lot of satanic rituals going on there and different things with Kabbalah and different things. So do you find there is a connection between um, esoteric or satanic um, worship and the high levels of this tech? technology slash military stuff.
1: Well, I don't know whether, I, I don't think this guy that you're talking about was uh, ex-military. He was um, more like a civilian. And it was, uh, he did have a Tesla coil, but what he was asking me about was his toroidal coil, which is um, a gateway, uh, I'm pretty certain, to a uh, gateway between the dimensions or the uh, mm, the levels of heaven, if you wish, you know, the concentric universes.
0: Right. Right. Um,
1: and what he was attempting to do, I mean, I built one, he built one in a different location in town, and they both burned out after the initial uh, effects that we had seen, and the coil would no longer work. You'd have to build a new coil and move it to a new location physically before you could try it again. And he was going to figure out how to get around that. And my friend um, uh, Kim Grierson and I were there together, and we double teamed this guy in this big warehouse where he had all this set up. Because uh, he was in the office portion, where he couldn't see what we did if we went outside his office. And Kim went to the toilet. So let me let me go to the toilet. And this guy, said, oh, it's around there and down the hall. And so Kim wandered off to look around and see what else was in the factory while I was distracting the guy and looking at all these Hebrew and various things that were written around. Uh, he didn't see me doing that either, but uh, because Kim had pointed some things on the wall to me when the guy's back was uh, to him, he, lifted up a counter and there was a Hebrew word for sword written down there. And then, you know, various other things had Hebrew, but they were all covered up. So I couldn't see them unless, you know, Kim or myself lifted things or moved things. So Kim went on out into the warehouse. I was talking to the guy, and it was in Fremantle there in Australia. And um, uh, Kim found this room that was all closed in, built out in the middle of the warehouse, uh, probably, as I recall, about, oh, 30 feet, maybe 30 feet and square. And there was one door in, and a little little glass thing you could look in through the doorway to see what's inside. And so Ken looked in, and so did I. Well, he'd come and go look at it later when it was my turn to go to the bathroom. And uh, this was a, a satanic worship center. There was a big uh, circle on the floor, the pentagram on the floor, a, a throne sitting at the other end of it with the goat's head over it uh, and, and seats for people on the sides to sit in, in this, this ceremonial room. So we knew that what this guy was trying to do and those that were working with him was to use the toroidal coils to gate demonics into this world, um, even if they had to, to house them in the, the old um, jail cells that were there underneath the warehouse from the days of the shipping, you know, a hundred years before. They had old jail cells and storage pens that could lock off, and maybe that's where they were going to house these things, I don't know. But that is what they were after, and I, I got to tell you, when you are standing there looking at the evil, evil things that we saw and realize, what they were trying to do was, you know, a horrible thing like a Stargate in essence, except it's a dimensional gate, to gate in worse than the Gaul of the Stargate series. These are demons, I mean, real, real bad dudes, and, and store them there for a time to release later. The hair on the back of your neck goes straight out, boy. I mean, it's like electric. You know, you're in the presence of
0: real evil. And we were. Right. And I didn't help him, by the way. I, no, right. Um, well, I guess, um, you know, uh, in kind of looking in just here and there, seeing that there is a, even just with a popularist kind of Church of Satan um, kind of angle, there is even talk there of a lot of this kind of thing and figuring out how to, quote, open open dimensional doors for the, quote, old ones. And, you know, I, I see a lot of the stuff that's going on as, you know, possible connections to it i mentioned this in in one of the notes that i sent you and you were like uh yeah I, didn't look, I don't know about any of that but i just want to throw it out there um there is a lot of stuff with different it seems to me there is a connection with a very limited research that i've done on this that there's connections with different kinds of things like um like extremely low frequency waves and stuff like that that, that, that you know in the sense that they are used you know i don't know that there could be some kind of physical component to, as you know, we're saying, there's definitely a physical component to bringing in these these beings, these demons. So it seems like if they are, in fact, empowering these, either they've targeted the people and people's in position to make these things for them, then eventually we could see these things on a massive scale. And that's why I guess I was a little concerned about things like, you know, I don't know, I, this is total speculation, but things like CERN and things like that. Because, I mean, if I don't know. It just seems like a huge doorways could be opened up at some point, and it's just very, very scary situation. Uh,
1: you said things like Sun, S-U-N?
0: No, no, CERN, C-E-R-N. And I, I have no... Oh, CERN, oh, okay, yeah, right. But just because, you know, I don't know. Any thoughts on any of that? I'll, I'll move on on that one, but just uh, anything that well, hit, hit you? Look, look the,
1: the Tower of Babel story is... Um, based on something that was raised up like a ziggurat, uh, high above the ground on several levels, Um, and it was a place where the gods came and went. Now, Bab-El, in the Sumerian languages, Bab means doorway and El means God, and Babylon was the gateway of the gods, Babylon. Now, I did manage to discover a stila uh, which was made in the time of Marduk, which had part of the, the, the architectural plans for building the ziggurat with the top level for where the gods came and went. And there is a circular thing on it, and because it was a, um, oh, a, a flat drawing, a 2D drawing, I'm reasonably certain it was meant to be 2D, 2D. On the top level of the ziggurat was a circular, in fact two circular uh, areas where the gods came and went from inside of a, of a more square looking room. So it's like a stargate or a star bubble or whatever. Now, as best we could see from putting together from other uh, translated works, which I didn't translate but from the uh, old Sumerian records, um, the gods would come through this portal at the very top level and would go out and uh, the people would have placed food and, uh, you know, various other things for their comfort around that upper level for them to spend some time there to discharge a lot of the energy that, that they have in their molecules from where they lived when they came to us. And then after a period of time, the, the gods would then go down to the next level where they had food and stuff to sustain them, and they would walk around and uh, discharge more energy, and they would do this through several levels until they got to the last one where they would come walking down the ramp, uh, the long ramp, to, to meet with the humans, and at that point would not hurt them if they touched them because their, their, their lesser charge or, uh, was not so high any longer. So it was a a thing that we had uh, hypothesized in looking at parallel universes or concentric universes is that there are different energy density levels between them and at the level where, say, like God would exist, the energy density would be so huge that to look face-to-face with God would destroy your presence here. I mean, just, you know, instantly because of the energy. And we found a reference to that in um, the account where Moses is on the, the mountain and wanting to see God, which is a natural thing. And God said, look, I can't do it. I can show you my shadow projected onto this cloud while you hide in that uh, cleft in the, in the mountain there. But uh, <laughs> if I were to show you direct, I would destroy you with my presence. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, that is a big change from the time of Noah when Noah walked daily and talked with God in the gardens and out and around and said, you know, how things, what's, you know, what's going on. Adam. And God said, look, I'm not going to be here with man. I'm not, my spirit is not going to strive with you forever. I'm leaving in 120 years or whatever it is, and, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. And the disparity between the energy densities of our universe and and his one, concentric one around us, is going to be increasingly great and great and great until they merge, at at which time in the the Revelation of John, this Earth, this universe, everything that we know here will pass away in a fervent heat and will be replaced by a new heaven and earth. Um, So it will continue, but, uh, you know, the model will continue, but at a different energy density where God is is located. So do do you see there... There are marvelous things in the physics uh, and the philosophy when you combine them to understand about the energy uh, God has and about how beings from his level or just under between his level and ours who had more energy density came through that gateway. And these were the cast out ones, the followers that even Plato has spoken of as the 12 sons of God that were cast to earth. Um, there may have be been more, but at least 12 spoken of in at Atlantis, a uh, uh, debate in Critias and Timaeus. And they had to come through a gate like that, be cast to the earth, build 12 centers, and the earth then split the time of Peleg, and then you have uh, the, the legend of Atlantis over in the Persian Gulf region, and then there were 11 other places, you know, probably South America and China and various other places where these beings uh, mixed with humans and did various things and passed various technologies on, and this is our ancient history of very very vague as it is, but
0: that that ties in with uh, Genesis six. Sure, and they're going to be using that ancient history essentially against us to prove their version of it here very shortly. I think absolutely, it's good. you've got it in one. Absolutely, um,
1: not be deceived. It's going to be so darn clever.
0: I know because we, we we still haven't got any answer for things like the pyramids and how they were built, and so it'll just be so easily to deceive us on just showing us that. Um, one thing uh, I thought it was interesting about Babel is I've heard it said that. Um the term that it says the top that reaches into the heavenlies can be better translated in the Hebrew as uh with the heavenlies in its top. So that would yeah. jive with yep. that. Um, subtle differences, but yes. Yes. And um another thing on that, do how do you feel about like the what seems to be the geographically bound gods uh, all at different points in, in of the earth, like the Prince of Persia and different things like that. Do you feel that they that they are playing a key component in some of the uh, things that we see happening today?
1: Oh, I'm sure they are. Um, and, and these beings probably aren't visible uh, to people at the moment, but they are around us. Um, I often think back about what Jesus said, um, Father, forgive them for they're blind, they cannot see. In other words, our eyes cannot cannot see the parallel worlds or the concentric universes around us. You know, the, the beings that, that coexist with us sometimes in a level beneath us, or a shell beneath us. You know, a universe that is just beneath us in energy density. Uh, ghosts. Uh, uh, we see ghosts, or people see ghosts, and I think it is a a, a point where the two universes, the, the waveforms, pass through each other, and momentarily. Uh, Or for the period of the 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 vision you see of this ghost, we are seeing beings in that less dense world to us uh, as they pass through us. Now, um, you'll find that the most reports of uh, of valid sightings of uh, ghosts, uh, you know, spirits of the you know the deceased, when they enter a room, there will be a coolness in the room. It's cold, chilly. Whereas when an angel from above, a messenger from above, and the uh, levels above us appears, it is warm, and that's telling you right there there is an energy density difference between the levels of existence. The lower one, uh, lower one or ones to us are cooler; the ones above us are hotter, getting increasingly hot uh, when you reach where God is. So it's just a little little side issue
0: there. I wanted to throw that in. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. A lot of this is so amazing because to see how physics and and mechanics and mathematics explain so much of the paranormal, um, you know, just a matter of perception, I guess.
1: You know, that Stargate, I'm thinking back on that. I forgot to tell you on that Marduk drawing about the circle thing. Uh, with that guy in Tremantle there that had all the Hebrew and one of the toroidal coils, a toroidal coil is like a donut with wire, with a layer of wire wrapped around it. And if you stand it on its side, it becomes like the Stargate they've got in the series. And I don't know who wrote that for them uh, and how they came up with the round Stargate, but it is so close to what is really there. As you know, It's not taking you to other star systems. But its parallel or concentric universe is right around us. It, it, it gates your phase, your gravitational phase, into that next universe. And uh, it, it is so close to what uh, I would, from the drawings and, and, and stuff we've taken out of the old writings, so close to what a gateway would look like that I'm astounded. And, and, and what comes through it? Um, Possessive-type gods, the, the ga'ul that uh, um, form a symbiotic relationship with humans by a, a, attaching and controlling them. It's like a possession, isn't it? Mm, yeah. I mean, it's just—it's just spooky how close that stuff is. I—I'm amazed. I, and and it, it's certainly great to have that Stargate series to relate to people and say, "Look, if you—if you buy something like that, it's probably possible." Let me tell you about the real stuff. You know, it's,
0: it's almost the same. Right. Um, I, one of the things I always see those—you know—if indeed there are beings that are coming through this in whatever way that they are, um, um, you know, I, I don't. I, I think there's obviously a difference between kind of the, what we term demons and, uh, you know, a lot of the angels, it seems like they're the disembodied, the demons seem to be disembodied spirits of the Nephilim or whatever, but it doesn't really matter. It's semantics yeah. or whatever, but, um, I guess it kind of does. But my point is, is that I don't know if a lot of these things can show up while you have Christians here that understand their, uh, authority in with, that that jesus has given us you know because i think that they would still be susceptible to that authority so you could just march right up to one of these things and rebuke them essentially and so i, th- I always see that as kind of a very very touchy subject of like maybe there would be a mass exodus of christians right around the same time you have these guys showing up and saying hey I agree,
1: and I and I think it will either be at the beginning of that period of time of the trip of the seven-year tribulation, or uh, just at the middle when things start to to, to go down in a handbasket, literally. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my my view on it, though, about it being a pre-trib rapture, is this: um, uh, if you look at the story of Abraham and Isaac, and and going out, uh, and Abraham sending out uh, servants to go get uh, Isaac's bride from a far country that is not. Doesn't belong to Abraham. You see messengers going to get the bride and take it back to the, the bridegroom. But the the Abraham uh, being a prototype for, for God or an example of God at that point in, in the parable of the story uh, is saying uh, this is in the, uh, in the in the in the in uh, the in the Torah. You see, I mean, this is Old Testament before a lot of the modern theologians could get to it and screw it up. And uh, this is telling you about a a, a secret removal of the bride from a far country that does not belong to God at that point. And, of course, uh, Earth is, uh, is, is uh, the title to earth is in Satan's hands until the Messiah comes and takes it back. But Messiah cannot come down and take his bride and set foot here because it's not his property. He can send his messengers, the angels, to collect us up in the clouds for meeting with the Lord. And that's before the Lord's actual return. So this there's a there's a, a, a parallel story there in the in the story of Abraham saying that it's going to be a rapture it's going to be secret, and then if you look at the the uh, ancient the most ancient of Hebrew wedding ceremonies which which Jesus would have been quite familiar with, um, the bride uh, is taken from her home by friends of the groom because the groom does not come into the bride's home to to get her and take her to the wedding ceremony. The friends of the groom come in and take her out in the, in the night, cover her, her face with a veil so no one can see who's going, and secretly go to the wedding ceremony. Um, they're just, and there's more to that story, which you can read in Zola Levitt's uh, An Israeli Love story book. Uh, Zola's uh, passed on now, but uh, his story in that book about the wedding uh, ceremony is absolutely true, and it, it's another archetype of, of the rapture and the secret rapture and uh, being taken away to the wedding now the the the, the wedding ceremony tells uh, more than than the abraham isaac story the wedding story tells uh, about how the son of, of you know the, the, the groom's uh, father uh, cannot uh, sorry the son who is the uh, the groom his father has to tell him build a house or a home or a room for your bride and yourself right, to, you know to go to after the marriage And the groom builds that house, and then his father says, Okay, um, I'll tell you when you can go get your bride. And so sometime within a year after the betrothal, uh, the deal that's been made with the the father of the bride, the groom is told by his father God in this case to Jesus, Go get your bride. And uh, that's when he sends his friends into the territory to get it because uh, he's not allowed into that territory uh, because he doesn't own it. You know, that's just the law. Sure. So it, 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 it. And Jesus. And take Noah. Noah was protected and in advance and sheltered in advance in the ark with provisions before the flood hit. And it's not going to happen that way again. It's going to be by fire. So we're going to be taken to a place of safety, just like Noah. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah. So well, this tells you, don't worry. It'll be okay.
0: Right. And I think in the flood story, you have essentially Enoch as a type of the church and Noah more as a type of the, the remnant of that make it through the, the wrath, essentially, that are going through the wrath. I think Jesus validates the, um, the, the wedding, uh, scenario, uh, very much in his, when he says the common, uh, a Jewish phrase when people would ask you, when, when is your wedding going to be? And since it was contingent on the father saying, okay, the house is ready, go get your bride, he would say, no man knoweth the day or the hour but my father, who isn't in- or- Absolutely, or- Absolutely. I forgot
1: to mention that. Thank you, Chris. That, that is absolutely correct. Absolutely. Right. There's just so many little clues there that tell you, straight from the mouth of Jesus himself, in several of the versions, you know, of the books of the New Testament, it's got to be that way. hmm. And, oh, you look. There's a little slight error in the translation, the Nestle Greek, or sorry, in the in the uh, not the Nestle Greek, but the the Greek translations that are floating around in, in English, of the New Testament. Uh, in Thessalonians, we're talking about, uh, and they shall be, those who are living shall be caught up in clouds to the maybe, in, in, you know, uh, uh, with the Messiah. It's actually they should be caught up inside clouds, like a glowing cloud of light around them. And uh, uh, many years ago, I, I was married before, and uh, my, my wife uh, at that time had a dream vision in the middle of the night and woke me up to tell me about seeing our bodies with white cloud-like glowing things, and our atoms were vibrating, and our bodies were being pulled out of the physical body up into a meeting with the Lord in the air. And so that's when I started looking at the, the Nethal's Greek and going back to the translation of that, that preposition and found that it was we are being caught up inside clouds to a meeting with the Lord in the, in the air. So... Very we're going to go. We're going to go, and we're going
0: to go uh, in a, in a nice way. Praise God for that. Um, Absolutely. Um, let's see here. I got a few things. First of all, Zola Levitt. Yeah, he's a national treasure. It's a shame that he's gone. But uh, but wow, what a load, a lot of information he has um, left for yeah, us. I, I
1: miss him actually. I I'm, I really do. I, I like Zola. He was a good man.
0: Yeah. Um, um, one thing I've noticed, and there is you know, with all the stuff that you do, and all the you know this just all over the board you have very little that i can find i'm sure that there are um Standeo detractors people that um that are you know very uh angry with you and are i mean is it well i mean at least i can't see them do you have your fair share of uh, of opposition out there
1: well let's say that if you look on the internet there's probably 95 96 percent pro i'm four percent saying that i'm a looney tune and too heavy <laughs> on the religious stuff and. uh Uh, I read those as well as the others when they come in, and um, I try to meet uh, any criticism as far as uh, physics or philosophy or whatever, and um, uh, it's hard for them to really maintain an anti-Stanley position when (laughs) I will debate with them uh, and even look at my own position and and, uh, try to see if there's fault in that, because uh, nobody died and left me with the absolute understanding of the truth of the Bible, and I I think no Christian here on the earth is... Uh, any more you know enlightened in that respect than the rest that was for all students not teachers of the Bible were students trying to learn together and once I make that clear to people that look okay I'm not beating the drum and saying you have to believe me that I, I believe I'm absolutely correct i this is why I think I'm correct on whatever issue it is so it makes them hard to to, to remain you know <laughs> nasty and antagonistic but uh, there's one physicist who certainly <laughs> has has uh, remained that way I, I won't mention his name here but uh that is on purely the physics of gravity and, and existence of, of uh, everything but uh he and i've had some rather interesting exchanges of, of dialogue but um no i i don't worry about that much and i and i don't really feel that pressure these days um i'm just doing you know what i think is right and uh, certainly i'm open to correction so right that way it's very hard to argue with me
0: <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, um, I got, I, let's see, we're right here at an hour. Do you have a few more minutes to spend with me? I got just a few more questions, if that's all right. Okay. All right. Um, basically, uh, let's see, I'll try to hit the, uh, important stuff here. One thing, um, I wanted to ask you about just cause I'm curious and I, and I heard you mention this before, uh, in regards to chemtrails, I've never heard anybody give me a really good explanation. I just wanted, if you had any idea what they were, I remember you had said they had, you weren't saying in any way definitively that they might have been about global dimming. And I was wondering because I see them at night too, like in the moonlight and stuff, that it seems to be almost more prevalent. So I just wanted to see if you had any input on that.
1: Well, I still maintain that the majority of them, not all of them, some of them I'm sure are probably experiments on the population with various uh, methods uh, of being able to immunize a large segment of the population by aerosols, you know, against flu and pandemics and various other things that may occur in the bio war coming. But the majority of what we've seen um, in the day and even those at night, what they're doing is they're putting up a, 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 um, a metallicized uh, aerosol, which even uh, Dr. Teller uh, proposed many, many years ago, and that was to change the albedo or the reflective index of the planet. And um, by doing this, even at night, what you do if you do it at night, you hold heat into an area. If you do it during the day, then you reflect uh, heat away. But there's another part of this, another type of uh, chemtrail that is used to hide uh, military uh, and uh, sensitive locations from satellite observation. So there are a number of things at play there, different uh, agendas. Hmm. But um, that's that's where I live. I don't think that they're trying to kill us off. Right. It may be bad for us to breathe aluminum particulates and stuff, I, I think it probably is, but <laughs> it, it's a trade-off between being blown away in a nuclear war or burned to death by the sun and all the crops failing and the infrastructure going to hell overnight, or, okay, some of you are going to get emphysema, we're going to have some fatalities, but you know we're trying to save the majority of the people. So I'm, I'm not really one of these people that says, look, go hang the government or the Air Force for doing this. I think I understand why and um it, it is not without its dangers to the public but i think i probably would be moved to do the same thing if i knew everything the they did
0: great fair enough i i really hope you're you're correct on that i really do i think that's that's fair, very fair um another question about um this one to get your quick opinion on this you had mentioned before that the asteroid belt may have been the result of a, a spinning body stopping spinning for whatever reason maybe they were interloper to the solar system and maybe but my question is, in regards to Mars, it does seem that there is, I don't know, I've heard that there's one side of the face of Mars is, is littered with the asteroids, which is indicative of a very short period of time in which it was kind of done, uh, uh, and, and maybe describing force. My, my, my question is, is it, is that physically possible to, because I think to that a planet, because I think sometimes they say that the asteroid belt is because a planet was trying to form and didn't quite successfully form, and then it turned into asteroid belt, so I guess my, that's the okay, question. Okay,
1: here, let, let, me, let me say this. If you go to the website, to standao.com, and get inside the site there to the, the main page, uh, not the splash page, on the left you'll see um, a menu, and there uh, down about, oh, six or seven down, you'll see something called Stan's Corner. And that's the part of the website that I get to play with, and Holly maintains everything else, which is huge. But I occasionally go into Stan's Corner, which is my little private page there, and I put stuff up that I think is important. And I've just put up a, a link at the very top of that page. You can go to called The Face of Mars? question mark. Now, this is a PDF file. You have to use Acrobat to, to read it. But I have taken an excerpt from one of the last editions of Cosmic Conspiracy, uh, updated it a bit, and put it in there to explain about that asteroid belt and about the surface of Mars and why half of it has crud all over it and why there's a long gash in it. Um, I, it was either a small planet, a planetoid, uh, about uh, 300 to 600 miles in diameter that occupied the what is now the asteroid belt, or there was a moon about that size and a planet together there. But it, it, uh, it broke up, whether it, it was due to the um, the spin of the sun changing, slowing down, which closes out gravitational orbits. Um, planets orbit where they have to. They, they can't orbit arbitrarily at some radius around the sun. They have to be in a null gravitational zone between the divergent and convergent waves coming out from the spin center of the sun's gravity. So we think the asteroid belt um, is in transit at the moment. It's being broken up because the layer that used to form a null where a planet could uh, hold that orbit is now is now closing out uh, where the diverging hover waves are canceling which means uh, that the planet broke up because it could no longer be supported because it was was being sheared by the gravitational changes and it uh, whether it was the planetoid or a moon of it uh, ended up bouncing out of that orbit and hitting the surface of mars and you'll see that the surface of mars has a lot of red dust on it which is not indigenous to the planet it it is off-world junk, which probably came from this breakup, the gash uh, on the surface of Mars, um, it impacts and spreads out like an impact cone, if you wish, like a a long triangular cone. And the face on Mars, a farce, as I call it, by all these people trying to tell us it was a face in that debris and everything, if you look at the satellite photos that that NASA has, early ones and later ones, you will see that all of those... um, crystalline shapes like pyramids in that area and even the face piece itself are on pieces or large pieces of a curved surface that impacted and unfolded on the surface of Mars. Planets and planetoids, when they cool, form, and this is no you know secret, like the Earth has it too, there are mountains of mass underneath uh, the Earth uh, you know, on the surface that connect to the surface but point down like structures into the Earth as it cools and it, it crystallizes. And so these were large crystalline structures that were formed inside of a 300 to 600 mile diameter object uh, that, that impacted, broke apart, and it impacted uh, reasonably slowly. It, it, it was first trapped, as the dust was, in an orbit around Mars. The orbit decayed. It, was, it wasn't a high-speed thing, in other words. And it, it uh, impacted on the surface of Mars relatively slowly which then allowed the, the sphere to break and its innards be exposed to the surface of the planet and uh, become like pyramids or, or crystalline structures. And uh, the, it, the evidence is there, even the curl of the the, the plate, which uh, was originally the surface of the planetoid, helps us to determine the curve radius of the structure that hits. And then looking at the mass which is tri- distributed around, you can kind of put all those together and estimate the size of the mass. So. Uh, I think we'll find water on Mars, I, uh, and a lot of it, and I think we'll find a lot of other things buried on Mars, which would be of quite interest to us, once you get past all the red dust that came as a result of the planetary breakup, or planet breakup and, and orbital moon orbit in the asteroid belt. Uh, that's a long way to answer your question, but go and look at the face of Mars, question mark, PDF I've got, and I've got pictures in there to explain in, in better detail than what I just did, what I think happened there, and, and why the evidence uh, displays that
0: great that's very very informative um uh, I, I i needed all that information that's really good um one one thing um first of all standeo.com and the news there that holly does is just phenomenal it's like probably the most plagiarized news source on the an alternative media uh people it's it's it's, it's people's uh, show prep uh, for so many uh, alternative media shows i'm sure and uh she deserves so much credit for all the various stuff that she does uh the dare to prepare book and um and and everything the, the what's the series the, the series that i'm drawing a blank right now um uh, the, sorry the what the the, the uh um, all the the models of where to live. I'm I'm totally drawing a br- blank on oh, the name. Prudent places. Prudent places ah, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I she's just such a such a, a, a great light. I mean, it seems like so much so much uh, productions going on there. Um,
1: well, I tell you
0: what. She gets up at 5:30 before I do every morning. She takes
1: the dogs for a walk. She comes back in, grabs the news, and around 8 o'clock, if she's lucky, I roll my ancient carpets out of bed <laughs> and start to help. But she's there every day rain or shine, putting up news for us and for Steve Quayle's website, and uh, so, you know, my hat's off to her, and I'm, I'm thanking you for, for recognizing how much work she does. Uh, people just don't realize how much it takes. It, it takes till 10 o'clock in the morning to, to get Steve done, and then we get hours done after that, plus her, her uh, homemaker duties, plus... Writing another book uh, on the gardening stuff and, and updating other things uh, on the website and posting new things and, and preparedness, uh, you know, on the website where you can download it all. So, you know, you can understand how she works 100 hours a week, and so do I. I just work a little bit later than she does in the evening. So, yeah, she's a, she's a trooper.
0: And uh... – Finally, I just want to ask: Is there anything that uh, you know, with all the geopolitical things and things going on right now, uh, what, what's your, been your primary burden lately? What have you been focusing your energies on? What do you feel passionate about as of late?
1: <laughs> well, uh, that's interesting. Uh, we're we've been doing a lot for other folks uh, for a number of years, and right now, uh, we our information sources tell us uh, that it's so soon that the war is going to start in the Middle East that we have to endure until the Messiah comes. And so we're trying to get our own preparedness up, um, racing around looking at uh, the various alternate energy things that people can get off the shelf and how they can make better use of it for cheaper dollars. So we're spending a lot of time on that with uh, looking at solar, uh, wind, um, thermal, geothermal, uh, even the atmospheric uh, uh, interface I was looking at, uh, which the patent office denied a patent on. Uh, to help people get alternate power while they're enduring wherever they are. And then secondly, I'm working on, Holly and I set up another company called Halo Orbital Technologies. Uh, we did that last year, and uh, its uh, basic function at the moment is to develop a flying saucer to show people how an aerodynamic saucer can be made versus an anti-gravity one, but it uses the same concept but with air instead of uh, gravitational field. We're, we're probably within a month, maybe two months, if I can get rid of all the delays uh, of having that fly. We've got all the parts in, designed to avionics, uh, so the support superstructure is being built or being cut now Then over in Oklahoma, and I have to do some work on the, 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 uh, the shell parts of it for the, the saucer shape. And once that's done, uh, we should be able to make a test flight, as uh, I say, within two months. Um, I was hoping to make made the flight by May, and we, in the middle of May, we had so many people wanting books and advice that, that our, our workload tripled, and it hasn't slowed down since then, so we've really had to pack more into each day than you can imagine. And about 10 days ago, lightning struck our office, take, took out Holly's computer, which is our most important site in the office, and uh, blew up the air conditioner, up or the VAP up the top, and did a few other things, exploded the thing next to me like a grenade, and, uh, Fortunately, just superficial wounds to the head, and uh, so we were we we're still delayed in that. I'm still trying to replace the, the computer system, and uh, got her lending along on a, a laptop that we had that wasn't damaged, and I got her set up with wires running all over the office, the various things, and backed up data and stuff. And she's still functioning, and people probably didn't even see the hiccup in our system. But all that is very important at the moment, and, and, and foremost in our mind is to keep people advised of how soon things are about to happen, how much they need to prepare, what, you know, the priority things are, uh, how her book can help, certainly, uh, there's, uh, uh, when when the bomb drops, it's too late to start preparing, but right up to that moment, you can always do a little bit of preparation, and so that's important, and uh, the saucer and energy projects that I'm working on are important as well, if I can finish them in time, if not, well, they won't happen, but that's, that's where my attention is focused. Um, Basically, I'm letting the, the Cosmic Conspiracy uh, talk for itself. Uh, we haven't reprinted because I just haven't had time. There's just not enough time to get it ready, even for an e-book that people can download. Uh, I'm working on that paper I told you about, about the true nature of gravity, uh, magnetism, and uh, electricity, and showing you empirical tests that we've done in the northern southern hemispheres to prove it and these themselves are extraordinary uh, simple tests to do with wire and a laser and a battery and uh, uh, astounding uh, it shows the polarity of all atoms on the earth to a gravitational field so uh, all these things are important and I, and I think if i listed on a piece of paper which we tried to do the other day i've got about 24 projects all my
0: urgent. Uh,
1: so when you ask me which is foremost uh, duh, i don't know chris <laughs> it feels like a shotgun out there
0: well I encourage everybody that's listening to uh, take some time after the show and pray for Stan and Holly and their their ministry and everything they do and really just uh, try to make it a daily part of your prayers because they certainly could use it and pray against any any oppression or anything that might be uh, trying to thwart it.
1: That is much appreciated, much appreciated. We do that every day, but we need much more prayer behind us.
0: Okay. Thank you for your time, Stan. I can't thank you enough. And if you ever uh, need a a platform to to discuss anything else, I'd be happy to uh, offer offer it to you.
1: Thank you, Chris. I do appreciate that. Okay. And uh, get prepared.
0: All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.